we are extremely excited to kick off a new semester. I hope you feel young when I say semester again, right? I want to just begin this morning by uh, saying a little bit about our purpose here as we begin uh, our study anew for the fall. So if I haven't met you yet, my name is Chad Scruggs. I'm one of the pastors here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. And uh, Paul Goebel's back there. Wave, Paul. Paul and I, another pastor, um, alternate co-teaching this study every week. And um, basically, I want you to know that we're trying to do two things um, besides contradict each other. Basically, two things that we're trying to do week after week. Um, the first is, um, our, I think our primary goal is to get your eyes on the Bible. Okay? When you come on Tuesday mornings, we want to get your eyes on the Bible. Uh, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, that it's living and active and powered by God Himself, by His Spirit, to transform us as we read it, open ourselves up to it, and as we follow it. And so we're trying to get you to do just that, just to look at it, even if you don't, you, it may be utterly unfamiliar to you, to engage with it, to open yourself up to it and see what the Lord does. Number one, get your eyes on the text, right? The second thing that we're trying to get you to do is to get you in the practice of doing that, your eyes on the text, with other people in community, okay? That's why you're at tables this morning. Now, I want to say just one quick thing about community. Community is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days, and I want to tell you what I mean by community. By community, I don't necessarily mean your best friends, okay? Um... I don't mean the people that get you at your deepest level, although that would be nice, I'm sure, right? By community, I mean others who are also on the journey of discipleship, with whom you can share that journey in growing transparency and trust. Uh, the people at your table this morning may never be your best friends, and that's okay, but I think coming here week after week and sharing life around the text together I think will enlarge your own perspective of what Jesus is saying in his word in a way that you would have never seen if you'd gone at it alone. So that's really sort of the point of how we arrange our Tuesday mornings. If you're new here, you're going to find that we'll do about 30 minutes of teaching to get our eyes on the text, and then 30 minutes of you thinking about that together around your table because we believe ultimately that God's word and God's people is his basic recipe for how people get changed, how men and women and children, his creatures get transformed, all right? That's how the morning is broken up. Now, there, there's no secret here this morning. I think you can see the banners. Maybe you've seen some signs already. We're studying the book of Revelation this semester over the next 14 weeks. And I, I'll tell you that the response, I've been thinking about this now for about a year, wanting to do this. And the response I've gotten has been pretty interesting when I've told people, kind of socialize the idea a little bit, like, hey, we're studying Revelation. On, on the one hand, most people are, have been pretty excited about that. You know, I think Revelation seems exciting. It's, you know, it's filled with images and, um, uh, that are strange to us, a little mysterious. And so, and, and I think those images feel like they're away from us, that they're at arm's length. And so it feels like an adventure to dig in there and to hope for more clarity on a book that, in some ways has a strange aura about it in the New Testament, right? So a lot of people have been excited. The other kind of strange reaction I've gotten, though, is that people have been really cautious. People have sort of looked at me like, are you, are you sure you can handle that? You know? <laughs> kind of like Revelation is above my clearance or something, above my pay grade. 
So, like, I'm not old enough, which I might not be. But um, I, I do want to make one thing very clear at the beginning of our study, and that is the name of the book. All right? The name of the book is Revelation, not Revelations. Okay? Revelation. And the meaning of that word is what it sounds like. It is to reveal. <laughs> the purpose of the book is to reveal, not to conceal. Um, it is to clarify and not to confuse. So God has given us this book because he wants us to know, know him. He wants to actually use this to, to come closer to us, not to keep us at arm's length. And I just want you to remember that as we go along, as we read things that are very unfamiliar, that God has given us this book to reveal things to us, not to conceal them from us. A couple other brief introductory remarks as we go along, just some facts about the book itself. First of all, you may or may not know this, but Revelation was written by a man named John, John the Apostle. And Christian testimony throughout the ages has said this is the same John who walked with Jesus, same John who touched Jesus, the same John who saw Jesus transfigured on the mount that was part of really his inner circle, the same John who saw Jesus resurrected, right? The same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote three letters that bear his name. So this John wrote more of the New Testament than everyone else except the Apostle Paul. And John writes this letter, this book to us, toward the end of his life as, he, as he's exiled, probably the last apostle living at this point, as he's exiled on an island called Patmos, never to see his family and friends again. Secondly, I just want to answer this question too. What is the book of Revelation? What kind of book is it? And I want you to know that fundamentally it's not a book. Fundamentally, Revelation is a letter. Revelation was a letter originally written for circulation to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia. You're going to see those seven uh, um, churches named in Revelation chapter 3. Okay? And so John wrote th this letter to those churches, and this letter, there were local churches like this local church, maybe a little bit different in size and, and, and the architecture, right? But seven local churches, and, and the letter was meant to be read. Can you imagine that? read by the pastor in worship. And so people would hear the whole letter read to them in worship and they would leave utterly terrified. No, I'm just kidding. Um, they, would <laughs> they would leave encouraged. That's the whole point of the book, of the letter, was John was trying to encourage them in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances and a very difficult culture. Okay? That's the historical setting. We're going to read now this morning just the first eight verses. And I really want to set the stage this morning for you for the rest of the book and the rest of our semester together. So you should have a handout at your table for everyone. There should be enough for everyone. And in that handout, every, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. Please keep showing up. Get you one for free on your iPhone or whatever phone you use. A Samsung that will blow up now, I think, in your car. But um, we can get you an app that gives you a Bible. If you don't have one, please keep coming. Um, the text is there if you ever forget it too. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. John writes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. 
Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to, to, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray this morning and ask the Lord to teach us his word. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We do pray and ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive and obey. Um, Father, would you open our eyes to see your son Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. So I want to share with you two brief stories this morning. I just want you to listen for what the, these seemingly unrelated stories have in common, okay? Um, the first is a little bit of an homage to the opening weeks of, weekends of college football. Um, years ago, uh, USC was humiliated by Notre Dame. So sounds familiar if you're watching the Alabama game a week ago. The coach at the time was uh, John McKay, famous USC coach, right? You know who John McKay is. You've heard of him before. After the game, he walked into the locker room, and he saw his, his young team all hanging their heads, disappointed, thoroughly depressed football players who had never been accustomed to losing, okay? And um, he got up on a box, um, stood up and said, young man, I want you to raise your hands, heads up, and I want you to keep this in mind. Right now, there are 800 million people in China who have no idea that you played a game today. That's number one. The second one goes like this. There was a freshman in high school who went out for track. He had no athletic ability at all. This is not autobiographical, by the way. His father, though, uh, was, was a great runner in his day. And so to please his father, he went out for the track team. And his first race was a two-man race. His dad couldn't be there, in which he ran against the school record holder for the mile. And not surprisingly, he got destroyed. But not wanting to disappoint his father, the boy wrote home as follows. Look, you'll be happy to know, Dad, that I ran against Bill Williams, who is the best runner in school. He came in next to last while I finished second. Are you, are you, is it too early for you to get that? Okay. You awake enough to get that one? Okay, what do the two stories have in common? What do they have in common? I think just this. How we frame the circumstances and events of our lives matters to how we experience those things. How we frame... The events and the circumstances of our lives matters deeply to how we experience them. And another way I could put it is this. Both those stories are about the power of perspective. And I want you just to think for a moment about the power of perspective in your own life. Okay? Have you ever said something like this? You know, I used to think that way until fill in the blank, right? Until I read this, you know, extremely powerful book that changed my life. I used to think that way until I had to pay my own bills. I used to think that way until I became a father or a grandfather. I used to think that way until I went to another area of this city or to another country altogether and I saw how people in real poverty lived. I used to see things that way until I became a Christian. See, same events, same circumstances, same material, but different perspective and so different experience altogether. And I say all this to you this morning because Revelation really does intend to reframe life for you. 
The, the book of Revelation intends to reframe life for you, to give you a, a different perspective on the events and the circumstances that are staring you in the face where you sit this morning. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's great. That's good. You know what? I, I, sometimes I lose my perspective and, you know, I need to regain my perspective on things. I need perspective. Let me issue you a word of caution with this book. The purpose of Revelation is not to help you regain your own perspective on your life. The purpose of Revelation is instead to lift you out of your own myopic point of view. To lift you out of your own perspective and literally to take you into the center of heaven, into the throne room of God. And to show you your life and our world from the perspective of God himself. See, that is John's agenda. John's agenda is to bring you with him as God lifts him into the heavenly places that are inaccessible to us except by grace alone. Three things I want you um, to know this morning, three questions I want us to answer that will set the stage for everything that you read in the book and what you hear from this morning on out. The questions go like this. Number one, what can we expect if we go with John? What can we expect to see if we go with John? Number two, how does Revelation come at us differently than any other book in the New Testament? How is it different? And then number three, finally, what is the payoff for us? Why should we go with him in the first place? What is the payoff? Let's take those in order this morning. Number one, what can we expect to see if we go on the journey with John. You know, John, I appreciate this really about him because he is so clear about this in the very first verse. Put your eyes on the text again and look at the first verse with me. Here's the subject of the whole book. He says in verse 1, the revelation of what? The revelation, he says, or better of who? The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that is extremely important. I have to skip over this morning because I think in popular culture, we tend to think that Revelation is really about something else. That Revelation is a timeline of world events about the, the last days. Or that Revelation is what heaven will be like when we die. Or that Revelation is about the spiritual forces that are at work all around us. Or it's about the, the geopolitical turmoil in the Middle East. No, says John, not primarily. None of those things primarily. Primarily, what I want to show you is Jesus. He's saying, come along with me from the very outset because I want you to see him in a way perhaps you've never seen him before. He is my subject. Now, I want to say that up front because I hope that helps us all relax a little bit, a little bit, you know, that it helps us exhale um, because it, it simplifies the target. And what John is asking us to do immediately as we engage this book is to really check our other agendas at the door. All right? If, um, now, now, let me make this clear. It doesn't mean that the book won't touch on other things. But it does mean that if we stop coming here on Tuesday mornings primarily to know Jesus, then we've gotten off track, and that is our fault. Because John couldn't be more clear at the beginning of the book. That Revelation is about seeing and knowing Jesus, right? And who is Jesus, according to John, in the opening verses? Well, let's just go through them for a moment here. John says that Jesus is the faithful witness. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. 
Jesus is the ruler of the kings of earth. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who has set us free by his blood. Jesus is the one who has made us to be a kingdom and who has made us to be priests to God the Father. He is the one who is coming with the clouds. He is the one with whom all creation, all nations, even those who pierced him, must reckon. And finally, John says, he is the Alpha and the Omega. Now you may know this, but Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the final letter. And what John is saying here is that Jesus is not just central to the story. He's not just the key to the story. He is the story. He is the story. He is the origin and the goal of all history. So if you just want to start applying Revelation and integrating it this morning from the first verse on, we might say this, Jesus is sufficient and he is what the world needs most. What does the Middle East need? What does Israel need and Syria need? Jesus Christ crucified and risen. What does our growing secular culture need? Jesus Christ crucified and risen. What does the global church need? Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega. What do you need? What do you need where you sit this morning before you go to work? In your new day, what do you need when you work? What do you need in your marriage, in your relationships, in your friendships? What do you need in your brokenness, in your loneliness, in your shame? You need Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the crucified and risen one. That is God's gift to us. And I just want to point out one more thing um, that another pastor pointed out for me before we move on. As John tells you about Jesus in verses 4 through 8, does he say anything new? Does he tell you anything new about him that you can't learn in the other 26 books of the New Testament? Well, the answer I'm going to tell you. The answer is no. And that's a really crucial detail in understanding Revelation because it means that Revelation is really not giving you new information It is giving you the same gospel you've heard over and over and over again in new ways, to hit you in new ways. You're not going to get a lot of new information. What you're going to get instead is the same stuff you've heard, the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is, hitting you in ways that perhaps have never hit you before. So number two this morning, how does that happen? How does Revelation actually come at us differently from other New Testament books? Well, it's true that Revelation is a letter, Primarily, that's what it was first, but it's not only a letter, it's also what we call um, uh, apocalyptic literature. So it's in the genre of apocalypse. And here's how we know that. First verse again, John says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word revelation in the Greek, it, it just, it's, it's translated apocalypsis. That's what it means. All right, and so John is saying this is an apocalypse. He's writing an apocalypse. That was a particular genre that people wrote in in the first century and way before. Now, I know, I think like when I said genre, like half your eyes just glossed over. And I don't, I get that, right? So you haven't heard that word maybe since you were in middle school English. But I want you to know, and this is true for you, you intuitively deal with genres every day, and you intuitively know the rules that you have to make, the choices you have to make within the rules of particular genres to read and to understand things as they're given to you, right? So here's an example. You probably read an email from your boss differently than you read an advertisement on a billboard, (coughs) differently than you read a stop sign. I bet you've never stopped the question, is that stop sign literal or figurative? 
Maybe suggestive at times, right? But not literal or figurative, right? You read that differently than the emoticons that some of you get from your girlfriend or your wives or whatever else you get on your text. You read things differently, but you don't even think about it. It's because you intuitively already know the choices and the decisions you have to make and the different forms of communication that come to you all the time. Now, it is the same for the the genre of apocalypse. The difference is we're just not as familiar with the rules. And so I want to say one quick thing, one simple thing about how to read apocalyptic literature, okay? Apocalyptic literature primarily uses images to do its work. It primarily uses images to do its work. That means Revelation is an extremely visual book. And it's supposed to be. And it also means that if you're going to engage, if we're going to engage together in the book, we have to use our imaginations. And I want to back up for a moment and say, I think this is where we often get into trouble with Revelation. And I'll say this as man, I'll make a general, maybe a, uh, um, a, a, a comment about gender that probably is not wholly appropriate. You know, I'll make a generalization here. But I think as men, we typically prefer our discourse um, from God, from our wives, from whoever, to be clear and precise and exact and, um, um, and to hit our left brain, basically, right? We don't want any confusion. You know, we want it to be aimed. Just look, um, have you ever been in an argument with your wife, if you're married, and said, sweetheart, will you just be logical? <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> Not very well, huh? I want you to take that as a warning with Revelation as well. If you try to dominate this book with your left brain, you will read it wrong. So I want to free you this morning from the desire to have all the images to fit neatly into a chart or a graph or an Excel spreadsheet just so you can be exactly and precisely clear about what's going on. I don't want you to worry about that because here, here's why. If God had wanted you to have those things, if he wanted you to have truth in the form of an encyclopedia, he would have given it to you. But he didn't. God gave you a vision. He gave you a vision. He gave you images. And why would he do that? Why in the world would God do that to us? Well, just for a moment, I want you to think about these early Christians. These early Christians from these seven churches in Asia. Early Christians are struggling to hold on to their faith. They're struggling to trust in the sovereignty and power and goodness of a crucified and a risen king in a culture that was at best, um, uh, at best uh, indifferent to them and at worst hostile to them. And in that culture, in the seven churches in the province of Asia, who owned the airwaves? Who owned the media? Rome. Rome owned everything. The Colossus known as Rome. And what did they hear from Rome day after day after day? Rome told them that it was the Alpha and the Omega. Rome told them that it was salvation and power and glory. What they heard day after day is that Caesar is Lord, and they heard it, but more importantly, they saw it. They saw it all the time, all around them. They saw it in the statues, in their towns. They saw it in the temples. They saw it in the money they had to use to go to the marketplace and get food. These early Christians were bombarded by a Roman propaganda machine. 
So I ask you this morning, do you think these early Christians needed strong, godly images to counter the strong, ungodly images that they were faced with every day of their lives? Do you think they needed that? What about you? Do you think you may need the same thing? Because without a doubt, you are no less bombarded by images, perhaps more so than ever before. They're in your pockets right now. They'll be out of here when you drive out. They're, they're in your living rooms. You're bombarded by images that try to sell you salvation through sexuality um, and self-sufficiency and power and money. You're bombarded by those images every day. They're all around you. They're all around me. And so God has given us a vision. He's given us a vision through his servant John not to have us work out all the details of the precision of the correspondence of those images, but to cleanse, to renew, and to sanctify our imaginations. One commentary puts it like this. He says, the visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of how the world is and how the world will be. Now, why is that so important? Well, I want you to remember what God is after What is he after? He's not just after your left brain. He's not just after your logic. The Lord is after every piece of you. He is after your whole mind, your whole heart, your whole body, your whole will. And he wants all of that returned to him in love. And perhaps revelation will awaken a part of you to the gospel that needs to be awakened in a new way. That's why God has given us this book. That brings us to our final question this morning. So what's the payoff for us? What is the payoff for us if we stay with it? You know, if we go with John and see what he sees. I want you to look again at verse 3. John writes, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John says the payoff is that you will be blessed. Okay, you will be blessed. In fact, the end of the book, the last chapter, as the curtain falls on John's final vision, he writes this. Blessed, once again, is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The payoff for you on Tuesday mornings is that if you come and you engage, that the Lord will bless you. The grace and the loveliness and the love of God will be poured into the very circumstances and events that are painful for you right now, that are good for you right now, that are staring you in the face right now, and that will face you in the days ahead. This spring, um, we had an opportunity to take our family uh, to Chicago um, after we watched my little brother graduate from Notre Dame. And so one of the places we went with the kids was to the top of the Hancock Tower. Right, so it's one of the tallest buildings in Chicago, and the Hancock Tower is for tourists. You go to the top of the, they have a huge observation deck, and New York has one too, right? And you can just see a a 360 panoramic view of the city. You get Lake Michigan and everything else. It's beautiful. Well, in addition, though, uh, on the observation deck, they had just built this experience called Tilt, all right? And uh, Tilt is exactly what it sounds like. Tilt is a part of the perimeter of the building that involves eight floor-to-ceiling windows. The whole thing's floor-to-ceiling windows. This is just eight of them, Okay. And each window has these two metal bars that protrude from the side of it for a person to stand there and to hold on, okay? 
and you pay money for this, right? And as you a- approach one of the windows, you stand out there and you, and you hold one of these bars and the whole section protrudes from the building and then it tilts you out over the street from a thousand feet in the air so that you're almost, not quite, but almost horizontal facing the street. Now I'm past the point in my life where this is even remotely fun or interesting, <laughs> honestly. And so I have kids, and so that's sort of like they wanted to do it, and we did it. And, and you know, and rationally, I was thinking, you know, I, I paid the money to do it because I, for my kids, too. Because I knew rationally that this was safe. You can't sell tickets to this if it's going to, you know, there's about a 50% chance you're going to make it, right? You know, I mean, uh, I knew rationally it is safe. And I had no problem believing in safety in theory. But when you're out there, okay, almost vertical, 1,000 feet in the air, and you have to experience the loss of control, well, it's a whole new ball game. And at that point, it's no longer enough to believe that the structure is safe. You desperately, desperately, desperately need it to be. At that point, you need something strong and reliable holding on to you when you're upside down a thousand feet in the air. Men, listen to me. If not today, if not today, then at some point in your future, you're going to feel like your life is no longer in your control. Like you've been tilted out of a comfortable place and now you're upside down and powerless. And at that moment, you will need the, po- the power and the sovereignty and the grace of God to be true for you, not just in theory. You will need to be true for you in your desperation, in your reality. You will need the Lord God himself to meet you in your fear and in your loneliness, and in your weakness, just like these early Christians did, you will need God to bless you. And how did God do that for them? How did he bless these early Christians? Well, he gave them an image of a man coming in power, riding a white horse. He gave them an image of a throne where all living things in the universe fall down in worship. He gave them an image of a groom in love coming for his bride. He gave them an image of a new city coming down out of heaven where death and sin and brokenness exist no more. Now listen to me. Do those images fix everything? Does Revelation fix everything? Absolutely not. But it reframes it. It reframes it. Revelation says that Jesus Christ is the Alpha and the Omega and that he is holding on to you. You may feel out of control. You may be afraid of what the future holds. But there is a lamb on the throne through through whom no circumstance or event in your life passes before first being sifted by his love and his power and his glory. And that is not just theory. That is in reality true where you sit this morning as you face your world. And that is the journey that John wants to take you on as he takes you into heaven to see what he sees. So come along with us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We pray, uh, praise you, O God, for this book. We thank you, God, that you long to give us the fullness of your son because he's what we need most, and we pray that you would do that. Um, Father, empower us to see him, to believe in him, to trust him. Um, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the desperation that our situation often warrants that we don't see, that we may love your son even more. In Jesus' name.
Amen.